1: Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today... Episode number nine, titled, And May He Be a Masculine Bridge, wherein we discuss how a simple quirk of grammar can affect the way we think. Yo, Mike,
1: what's happening? Hey, Bob. How are you? Really good, thanks. What do you got for me? Well, uh, before we start, I wanted to mention that last week, I offhandedly threw out a challenge to our listeners to employ a rhetorical device of some sort in their iTunes review. This was inspired by another listener's use of litotes, which is a form of understatement in their review. And I did manage to catch at least one from a listener whose iTunes handle is crone-crone, and who used a device called polyptoton, or polyptoton, depending on how that word is correctly pronounced. And I think we've already established that I'm no expert in pronunciation. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of examples and see if you can kind of figure out what this device is. So my first example is from the movie Fight Club, which I really love. Brad Pitt's character says, the things you own end up owning you. Another example is the famous observation by Lord Acton that, Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So based on those two examples, what do you think polyptoton is? You use the same
0: modifier but flip the order with the noun and the verb for, uh, you know, effect.
1: Well, you're kind of overcomplicating it. It's just when you repeat a word kind of very close to itself, altering it in some way, altering its tense, altering its part of speech. So, you know, an absolute power corrupts absolutely, the first absolute is an adjective, and then absolutely, of course, is an adverb. The listener Crone Crone wrote on iTunes, I like this show, shows what I know. Aha, Polyptoton. As polyptotons
0: go, that one was just totally polyptotontastic.
1: Polyptotonic.
0: Polyptotonic. <laughs> I don't know if that sounds like you know a diagnosis from your gastroenterologist Or, you know, like the world's worst smoothie. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely
1: definitely something you make in a blender.
0: Yeah. And no, it definitely is something I won't.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, let's get on with today's episode, which is a continuation of our discussion about language and gender. So here's my three-sentence recap of our previous discussion. Many languages around the world have what's called grammatical gender, meaning different noun categories. For some of those languages, grammatical gender correlates more or less with biological sex. And for some of those languages, the categories themselves are called masculine and feminine and sometimes neuter.
0: So the question we kind of left hanging, Mike, is whether in dividing nouns arbitrarily (laughs) into masculine and feminine genders, whether that somehow causes us to assign male and female qualities to inanimate objects.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Whether talking about them as masculine or feminine makes us think of them that way. And I mentioned that there's a psychologist at Stanford named Lyra Boroditsky who has devised a number of experiments in an attempt to answer that question. So let's talk about a couple of those experiments. First, Boroditsky and a couple of her colleagues created a list of 24 inanimate things, everyday objects that happen to have opposite grammatical gender in Spanish and German. Twelve of these objects were feminine in German and masculine in Spanish, like the word for bridge. The other twelve were the other way around, masculine in German and feminine in Spanish, like the word for key. K-E-Y. They then got a group of native Spanish speakers and native German speakers to write three adjectives for each of the objects in English. So all of the participants were, as Borditsky describes, highly proficient in English. The idea was to take Spanish and German out of this as much as possible, right, to eliminate the visual cues that those languages would impart and cut right to the psychology of how those speakers think of those objects.
0: So if you look at the word key in Spanish, which is, I believe, la llave, Mm -hmm. you may be influenced into choosing adjectives that are kind of feminine-oriented, girly. But can we just start with la llave? You know, what are these Spaniards thinking, key in a lock, key in a lock. <laughs> I think uh, is there male? anything more phallic and masculine? Uh, their language is, you know, it's, well, it's just stupid.
1: I guess you then think that the Germans got it right. Yeah. So what happened? Well, let's talk about the word key. German speakers wrote down and I'll give you a list of some of the actual words they wrote down in alphabetical order. Words like hard, heavy, jagged, metal, serrated, useful. And Spanish speakers used words like golden, intricate, little, lovely, shiny, and tiny. So I have some of the results also for the word bridge, Bob, but I want you to guess first some of the words maybe that Spanish speakers and German speakers used in English.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Uh- and remember, bridge is de Bruca in German, which is feminine, and it's El Puente in Spanish, which is masculine.
0: Okay, so um in Spanish they might say uh, massive strong and in German because it's feminine perhaps graceful, elegant, arching, lithe.
1: Okay, I don't think uh, I can curvaceous. Hear, that's enough. <laughs> I don't think I can hear you you keep describing a bridge like that. So you're actually like pretty dead on. German speakers used words like beautiful, elegant, fragile, peaceful, pretty, slender. Spanish speakers, on the other hand, said bridges were nagging, hectoring. (laughs) Okay, okay. Then you got yourself in enough trouble last week. (laughs) Spanish speakers said that bridges were big, dangerous, long, strong, sturdy, And towering. Remember, these are not translations. These are the adjectives they used in English. Now, just to take this into the real world, in 2004, a bridge was built in Malau, in southern France. It was, at the time, I think it still is actually, the tallest bridge in the world. And a linguist by the name of Dan Slobin, who's now retired from UC Berkeley, he went back and combed through press accounts of the bridge in both France, where the word for bridge is masculine, and in Germany, where it's feminine. He never published these results in any form, but he took very detailed notes, and he sent them to me recently, and they remarkably corroborate what Boroditsky found in her lab experiment. Of course, media in both countries talked about it being the tallest bridge in the world. That would be a kind of odd fact not to mention, right? But they tended to use different words and phrases in their sort of colorful descriptions when they got more poetic. So German writers said that the bridge floated above the clouds with great elegance and lightness. One writer said it was as if seven magic sails were carrying her through the clouds. They used words like breathtaking, beauty. And French writers focused more on the bridge's sturdiness. So they used phrases like an elegant passageway of steel and asphalt, a concrete giant, a wise marriage of steel and concrete. All right, Mike. So on the face of it, it would seem that Boroditsky's hypothesis
0: has been fully confirmed. But I'm curious that apart from language and gender designations – There could be some other variable involved in French and German culture that would uh, have a bearing on which adjectives were chosen to describe a bridge?
1: That's a good question. And essentially what you're saying is correlation is not causation. And if you think about the research that Boroditsky did on the personification in artworks that we talked about in the last episode and the experiment here with Spanish and German speakers describing bridges and keys – And these press accounts of the Bridget Malau, all of this involves comparing across languages and across cultures, essentially. So while all of this is convincing, it's hard to know for sure to what extent grammatical gender accounts for the differences as opposed to something else deeply rooted in the various cultures. So Boroditsky and her colleagues came up with an experiment to try to control, essentially, for culture. In this case, they used only native English speakers. And remember, English doesn't have grammatical gender. Boroditsky made up a fictional language and called it Gombuzi. Now, Gombuzi, the participants in this experiment were told, has two noun categories. And she came up with names for the noun categories. It doesn't matter what they are, we can just call them A and B. And the participants were shown drawings of things that were in Category A and things that were in Category B. So, for example, in A, there were drawings of human males, spoons, pens, and other things. In Category B were human females, forks, pencils, and other things. So what happens when you take something like a violin and throw it into the category with human males and later ask these people to describe a violin? Well, they use words like difficult, impressive, noisy. What happens when violin is grouped with females and you then do that? They use words like artsy, beautiful, curvy, pretty. Well, that's pretty extraordinary,
0: not just because it also seems to confirm her thesis, but it would suggest that we are very, very quickly subject to suggestion, Mm -hmm. I mean, in an almost frightening way, that people would so dramatically skew their worldview based on, you know, a couple of Venn
1: diagrams. Yeah, it's incredible. As Boroditsky puts it, it appears that just differences in grammar with no concomitant differences in culture are enough to influence how people think about objects. So if you just create this sort of new grammar for them, gumbuzzi, you know, with just pictorial associations, it really influences the way you think about these inanimate objects.
0: Well, I'm in the airport next. I'm stopping at Rosetta Stone because my gumbuzzi is pretty thin, I got to say, and I'm
1: (laughs) going to bone up. Well, I think Boroditsky is the only living person on the planet who's actually thick in gumbuzzi.
0: I'm wondering, though, Mike, you know, if she conducted the experiment without drawing the pictures first and just asked English speakers to describe a violin, whether the breakdown would be 50-50 or what?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because Dan Slobin, who looked at press accounts of the bridge at Malau, French and German press accounts, looked also at English-language press accounts of the bridge. And... In his notes to me, he said that one wonders, though, why English is not neutral between the two options, right? As you're suggesting, that it would kind of split the difference. English writers, both in Britain and in America, he looked at The New York Times, The Guardian, and other English language papers, tended to use phrases like delicate, beautiful, stunning, curving, gently curving graceful, slender, fragile looking. So it seems as though there's something else in English or in our culture that causes us to think of a bridge as more feminine. So lest we overstate the case, let's be clear. Many cultural factors influence how we think about objects around us. Language is a particularly strong cultural factor. So in languages that have grammatical gender, the mere fact that categories of nouns exist results in these subtle unconscious associations, but for languages that don't, like English, we form our own associations based on who knows what. All of this conversation makes me wonder,
0: yeah, so German has one way of processing gender in its language and Spanish has another way and French a third and so forth, but the fact that we're using English as the control If English is so much a derivation of German, tell me again why we
1: don't have gender in English? That's a great question. And in fact, English did have grammatical gender many centuries ago, but we lost it. Let's talk about how we think we lost it in a minute. But first, we need to take a break to talk about our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible is a provider of digital spoken audio entertainment on the Internet, As we've mentioned in the past, Audible has a special offer for Lexicon Valley listeners. If you sign up for a free 30-day trial membership, you'll get one free audiobook of your choice. But you have to use the URL that they set up to do this. It's audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. I was thinking about books that I would recommend. I've recommended a few in the last several weeks 2012 is the bicentenary anniversary of the birth of Charles Dickens. If I had to choose a favorite author, it would probably be Dickens. And it's so tempting to imagine if we were to have audio recordings of him actually reading his own work. He was very famous for giving these sort of public readings in his time. But, of course, his works live in audio form, some of which are read by his great-great-grandson, If you haven't read Dickens in a while or you haven't listened to a Dickens book, I would join Audible.com right now and use your free choice to listen to A Tale of Two Cities.
0: Tis a far, far better ad than you have ever done before. (laughs) Thanks, Bob. I was channeling Sidney Carton there.
1: Did I sell it? It was as if Dickens himself were reading. (laughs) If you join Audible.com, Your membership includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So please give it a try. Use our URL. It's audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. Okay. Where were we?
0: Where were we? You were about to reveal whatever became of gender in English. Right. I had no idea that, uh, you know, it had gone missing.
1: Yeah, we were once like, you know, the Romance languages. We had grammatical gender in Old English. Anne Curzan is a linguist at the University of Michigan who has studied the history of grammatical gender in English and wrote a fairly academic book called Gender Shifts in the History of English. Curzan observes that there's a kind of black hole in written English. There are very few English texts from about the late 11th century until the 13th century. And we know from Old English texts in the period leading up to that black hole that grammatical gender in English was alive and well. But coming out of that black hole period, it was just sort of limping along. What did it look like? What did it sound like? So if you had a noun like moon, which was a masculine noun, it would take a masculine form of the word the which was say, S-E, in Old English. Say-o, seo s e o was the feminine form of the. If it had adjectives next to it, it would take masculine adjectives, that is, adjectives with masculine endings. And if you were talking about the moon and you referred back to the moon, you would say he, his light shone down. That's amazing to me.
0: I can't exactly say I'm surprised I didn't know it before because I'm almost never surprised how much I didn't know before. Yet... This whole say, say sayo thing is a
1: revelation. And what happened to it? We know going into this black hole period that something interesting was already starting to happen with grammatical gender in Old English. Here's Anne Curzan.
2: For example, weef, which meant woman, that was actually a neuter noun in Old English. So it would take a neuter form of the, and it would take a neuter adjective. But if you referred back to that weef, Usually, even in Old English, you would say she. So there was already a natural gender system, to some extent, in play, even in Old English.
1: Sort of violating the grammatical gender, because if you were observing the grammatical gender, you would refer to the weaf as it. Mm -hmm. And that started to disappear. People were using she.
2: They were. So when the noun was referring to a person and the person's gender did not correspond to the noun's gender, the pronoun would often refer to the person's gender. Mm-hmm. So that was all happening in the language. And then I think the really important thing to understand about what's happening in the outer history of the language is that you have an enormous amount of language contact happening in the north of England because you have – after the Viking invasions in the 8th century and the ninth century, you've got a lot of Old Norse speakers living up in the north of England, and you probably have a lot of bilingual speakers, people who could speak both Old English and Old Norse. And we know that intensive language contact speeds up language change, or at least we think we know that.
1: (laughs) Well, let's say for the sake of this conversation that we do know it. (laughs) So one might conjecture that the change we're talking about, the sort of disappearance of grammatical gender in English, contact with Norse may have sped that up.
2: That's what people have hypothesized, and there there may be reasons for that, one of which is just that in language context situations, any change that's incipient in a language can get accelerated. But in this case, you had two Germanic languages. One is North Germanic, one is West Germanic, and at that time, they probably weren't fully mutually comprehensible, but with a given noun, often the roots were very similar, but the inflectional endings would have been different which means that people may have de-emphasized those inflectional endings, which were already weak.
1: Then it would just be a matter of time before those inflectional endings might just drop away completely.
2: That's what we think. And we do know that a lot of the changes involving the loss of inflectional endings, the loss of grammatical gender, seem to have started in the north where there was all that language contact and then spread to the south.
0: Huh. So, you know, I think I used the term Venn diagrams before, but that's exactly what's going on here, right? One circle represents Old English, the other Old Norse, and the overlapping set is the root of the word, and the different endings are, you know,
1: outside the common area. And there's even further evidence of just how close these Old Norse and Old English speakers were up there in the north of England. Here again is Anne Curzan.
2: English has actually borrowed a good number of words from Old Norse, including words like egg and skirt and sky, which are really common. And you think, okay, that must signal some pretty close contact. But the thing that signals the closest contact to me is that the pronouns they, them and their are borrowed from Old Norse. And that's odd.
1: For a language to borrow pronouns. For
2: languages to borrow pronouns. If we try to imagine what it would mean for us to borrow a pronoun right now and start using a different pronoun for they, it would be hard to integrate that into our everyday speech.
1: Pronouns are almost by definition among the most personal of words in a language. And to imagine that you're just going to borrow pronouns from somebody else, you'd have to be in pretty close contact with them.
2: You would. And there's a good chance that you would be bilingual, so that you would be moving Fluently between two languages, and so you could import the pronouns from one language to the other.
1: Hmm. I'm convinced.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Good. So, if I understand this correctly, we dropped gender versions of the word the. We dropped endings on nouns and adjectives that corresponded to gender. But sex has not entirely been eradicated from English because they, after all, are still
1: pronouns which do assign sex, right? Yeah. Yeah, they do. He, she, and it. And I'm going to leave you with the following question as a way to kind of foreshadow what we'll talk about in the next episode. What do you do in English when you don't want to call attention to the he or she-ness of someone? How do you go about constructing your sentence?
0: I'm a he or she guy. Otherwise, I use the default he What I never do is resort to screwing around with number and calling an individual they in order to obscure the sex. I mean, I just think that creates more problems than it solves.
1: You actually just hit on, like, a number of the points we're going to address more in depth next week. And I'm kind of surprised. I didn't really take you as a he or she person. I thought maybe you would have been more like, you know, McCain and referred to people as that one. (laughs)
0: <laughs> or like George H.W. Bush uh, the little brown ones which you know was, was even more specific
1: specificity in language is what our teachers are always telling us is a good thing right fucking
0: A by the way my friends I, I know you grow a little weary of this back and forth it was an energy bill on the floor of the Senate loaded down with goodies billions for the oil companies and it was sponsored by Bush and Cheney you know who voted for it you might never know that one you know who voted against it me
1: as a coda bob i want to clarify something we said last week i mentioned that the south african language kosa has about 15 noun categories and that for example the words for wife and husband are in the same category unlike in the romance languages and you said that kosa then is not genderized at all and i said right what I should have said was that, in fact, COSA has grammatical gender, which means simply that it has various noun categories, but that those categories do not correspond to biological sex.
0: Yeah. We were accused by uh, some listeners of carelessly using the word gender when we actually meant biological sex. They believe that the two words have been conflated And along the way, creating all sorts of unnecessary political
1: baggage. That's right. And that gets at what's so messy about this word gender. Linguists tend to use the phrase natural gender as opposed to grammatical gender. I used it in the last episode when what they really mean is biological sex. Because gender in the way that we've come to think of it in modern identity politics is a kind of social construction and many believe, a continuum, whereas sex is male or female, though some might take issue with even that. However, in our defense, as you observed uh,
0: last week, uh, not anticipating this conversation at all, gender is just a synonym for kind.
1: Well, let's flesh out the kind of etymology a little bit more. Protagoras called the three noun classes, as we talked about last week, in Greek, masculine, feminine, and neuter. Aristotle, in his writing, used the Greek word for class or kind, G-E-N-O-S. That word made it into English as gender in the 1300s and referred to grammatical categories. Later on, in the 1400s, the word gender got all wrapped up with male, female, masculine, feminine, And it's easy to understand why, right? I mean, if you're asking somebody what's the gender of that noun, and it's either masculine or feminine or neuter, it's not really a big leap to imagine that you would then transfer that to people, right? What's the gender of that person?
0: Which is exactly what has taken place. Yeah. Which doesn't, to me, seem like much of a crime based on the very etymology you've described. I mean, males and females are, in fact, two different
1: kinds of... The human species. Well, I think the problem is that words like masculine and feminine, those are sort of invented ideas about what it means to act like a male or act like a female, right? I mean, it's not masculine to cry or it's not feminine to build a house. You know, these are socially constructed ideas about what it means to act and behave in certain ways. And I think that that's where the danger comes in. And that's sort of how sex and gender is really conflated and fraught. Maybe the best thing to do would be to just sort of get that word gender out of our lexicon altogether. Just refer to the grammatical categories as noun classes, which linguists do anyway. Refer to male or female, as biological sex, which we often do anyway, and refer to the sort of identity politics in some other way, because it's just too confusing and conflated, and it's hard to extricate one from the other at this point.
0: Well, uh, you make good points, uh, but uh, somehow I think the whole conversation is kind of straining at gnats, and I mean both strong, rugged, masculine gnats and... Fetching curvaceous female ones.
1: Okay, you've now made a lascivious purring sound at both bridges and gnats. I'm not sure which is more disturbing, but getting gender out of the language (laughs) is my solution. If you have a better one, please let us know what it is. Write to us at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. You can find past episodes of our podcast at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Please subscribe to our feed in iTunes. If you like the show and haven't done so already, then drop what you're doing right now and subscribe to our feed, where you can also leave a rating or a review. I want to thank Lyra Boroditsky and Ann Curzan and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts.
0: All right, Mikey, we done here?
1: Yeah, I'm going to go home and, you know, strain at some gnats because that's what I do. Okay, lift with your knees. Later, Gator.